Lesson 1 for June 24 through to 30, Paul, Apostle to the Gentiles. The introduction to this quarter's lessons, The Gospel in Galatians, comes from the author, Dr. Carl Kosart, PhD, who is an Associate Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity. He teaches at Walla Walla University at College Place in Washington on the west coast of the United States. His introduction follows. The Gospel in Galatians The Protestant world is getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther, guided by the Holy Spirit, brought to millions crucial biblical truths that were long hidden under centuries of superstition and tradition. One could argue that, out of the pages of Galatians, along with Romans, Protestantism itself was born half a millennium ago. It was while reading Galatians that Luther first was touched with the glorious good news of righteousness by faith, the great truth that spawned the Protestant Reformation, which in turn freed millions from centuries of theological and ecclesiastical error. What he read in this book changed Luther, and the world has never been the same since. Seventh-day Adventists, many centuries after Luther, also are indebted to Galatians. Through the study of Galatians, E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones helped the Adventist Church in the 1880s and 1890s to rediscover the truth of righteousness by faith. What is it about Galatians that has made it such a backbone of the Protestant Reformation? Why has it been able to touch the hearts of so many, such as Luther? In a manner unlike any other book in the Bible, Galatians addresses a number of themes crucial to the Christian soul. It is in Galatians that Paul tackles issues such as freedom, the role of the law in salvation, our condition in Christ, and the nature of the Spirit-led life, as well as the age-old question, how can sinful humans be made right before a holy God and a just God? It was this question, perhaps more than any other, that spurred Luther on the track he started, and from which he never turned back. Of course, the other books, such as Romans, address some of these same questions, but Galatians is different. Not only is it more succinct, but its rich themes are written in a powerfully personal and impassioned pastoral tone that even today can't help but touch hearts open to the Spirit of God. Although Paul's letter speaks to us personally, our understanding can be strengthened if we are aware of the original historical situation that Paul, under the guidance of the Spirit, was addressing. Many scholars believe that Galatians may be the earliest of Paul's letters, written in AD 49, after the famous Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. The book, therefore, may be the oldest Christian document known. As Acts and Galatians make clear, the early church found itself in a fierce battle over the nature of salvation, especially in the case of Gentiles. According to a group of Jewish believers known as Judaizers, belief in Jesus alone was not good enough for Gentiles. Gentiles also must be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. It is no surprise, then, that when Paul founded a church of Gentiles in Galatia, some of these Judaizers travelled there to straighten things out. 
When word of this problem reached Paul, he reacted fervently, recognising that this false gospel of salvation by faith and works threatened to undermine the work of Christ. Paul wrote the Galatians an impassioned defence of the gospel. In the strongest of words, he identified this false teaching for what it really was, legalism, pure and simple. This quarter's Bible study guide invites us to journey with the Apostle Paul as he pleads with the Galatians to remain true to Jesus. At the same time, it gives us a chance to reflect on our own understanding of the truths that opened the way for Luther's inevitable break with Rome and the restoration of the biblical gospel. Sabbath afternoon, June 24. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to this voyage, this journey, as we go into the book of Galatians. In the past, we've studied the book of Galatians as Sabbath school lessons, but this time we're looking at it from the perspective of what the gospel shows in this particular book. And as we open it this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, each one. May your words speak to us. May your Holy Spirit guide our mind and our thinking. And may we see Jesus as the centre of all of our study. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Let's read that again, Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It's not that hard to understand Saul of Tarsus, also known as the Apostle Paul after his conversion, and why he did what he did. As a devout Jew, who was taught all his life about the importance of the law and about the soon-coming political redemption of Israel, the idea of the long-awaited Messiah being ignominiously executed like the worst of criminals was just too much for him to tolerate. No wonder, then, he was convinced that the followers of Jesus were being disloyal to the Torah and thus hindering God's plan for Israel. Their claims that the crucified Jesus was the Messiah and that he had risen from the dead were, he believed, rank apostasy. There could be no tolerance for such nonsense or for anyone who refused to give up those notions. Saul was determined to be God's agent in ridding Israel of these beliefs. Hence, he first appears in the pages of Scripture as a violent persecutor of his fellow Jews, those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. God, however, had far different plans for Saul, plans that he never could have anticipated for himself. Not only was this Jew going to preach Jesus as the Messiah, he was going to do it among the Gentiles.
Sunday, June 25. Persecutor of Christians. Saul of Tarsus first appears in Acts in his involvement in the stoning of Stephen, in Acts chapter 7.58, and then in connection with the more wide-scale persecution that broke out in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8. Peter, Stephen, Philip and Paul play a significant role in the book of Acts because they were involved in events that led to the spread of the Christian faith beyond the Jewish world. Stephen is of particular significance because his preaching and martyrdom appear to have had a profound influence on Saul of Tarsus. Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew and one of the original seven deacons in Acts chapter 6. According to Acts, a group of foreign Jews who had come to live in Jerusalem entered into a dispute with Stephen over the content of his preaching about Jesus. It is possible, maybe even likely, that Saul of Tarsus was involved in these debates. Question. Read Acts chapter 6 verses 9 through to 15. What charges were brought against Stephen? Of what do these charges remind you? Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Interestingly, Matthew twenty six fifty nine to 61 reads, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The fierce hostility towards Stephen's preaching appears to have resulted from two different things. On the one hand, Stephen drew the ire of his opponents by not placing primary importance on the Jewish law and the temple, which had become the focal point of Judaism and were treasured symbols of religious and national identity. But Stephen did more than merely downplay these two treasured icons. He vigorously proclaimed that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, was the true centre of the Jewish faith. No wonder, then, that he angered the Pharisee Saul, whose zeal against the early Christians indicates that he probably belonged to a strict and militant wing of the Pharisees, one full of revolutionary fervour. Saul saw that the great prophetic promises of God's kingdom had not yet been fulfilled 
the ones from Daniel 2 and Zechariah 8 and Isaiah 40 right through to chapter 55. And he probably believes it was his task to help God bring that day about, which could be done by cleansing Israel of religious corruption, including the idea that this Jesus was the Messiah. So to finish the day, convinced that he was right, Saul was willing to put those whom he thought wrong to death. While we need zeal and fervour for what we believe, how do we learn to temper our zeal with the realisation that, at times, we just might be wrong? Monday, June 26, Paul's Conversion Acts chapter 9, verse 5 reads, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Although Saul's persecution of the early church begins rather inconspicuously, as he only holds the coats of Stephen's executioners, it quickly intensifies as we read in several texts, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 2, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And verses 13 and 14. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the priests, the chief priests, to bind all who call on your name. And verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. And finally, in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Several of the words Luke uses to describe Saul paint a picture of a wild, ferocious beast or a pillaging soldier bent on the destruction of his opponent. 
The word translated ravaging in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, for example, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Psalm 80 verse 13 to describe the uncontrolled and destructive behaviour of a wild boar. Saul's crusade against the Christians was clearly not a half-hearted matter of convenience. It was a deliberate and sustained plan to exterminate the Christian faith. Question. Look at the three descriptions of Saul's conversion. What role did the grace of God have in this experience? In other words, how much did Saul deserve the goodness that the Lord showed toward him? And the first is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through to 18. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, and he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So, when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And the the second is in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through to 21. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance, and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And finally, in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 19. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen, and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Saul's conversion from a human perspective must have seemed impossible, hence the scepticism that many expressed when they first heard about it. The only thing Saul deserved was punishment. But God extended grace to this fervent Jew instead. It is important to note, however, that Saul's conversion did not happen in a vacuum, nor was it forced. Saul was no atheist. He was a religious man, though gravely mistaken in his understanding of God. Jesus' words to Saul, It is hard for you to kick against the goads, in Acts 26.14, indicate that the Spirit had been convicting Saul. 
In the ancient world, a goad was a stick with a sharp point used to prod oxen whenever they resisted ploughing. Paul had resisted God's prodding for some time. But finally, on his way to Damascus, through a miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus, Saul chose to fight no longer. So to finish the day. Think back about your own conversion experience. Maybe it wasn't as dramatic as Saul's, but in what similar ways were you the recipient of God's grace? Why is it important never to forget what we have been given in Christ? Tuesday, June 27, Saul in Damascus. During Saul's encounter with Jesus, he was blinded and instructed to go to the house of a man named Judas to wait for another man, Ananias. No doubt Saul's physical blindness was a powerful reminder of the greater spiritual blindness that led him to persecute the followers of Jesus. The appearance of Jesus to Saul on the Damascus road changed everything. Where Saul had thought he had been so right, he had been dead wrong. Rather than working for God, he had been working against him. Saul entered Damascus, a different man from the proud and zealous Pharisee who had left Jerusalem. Instead of eating and drinking, Saul spent his first three days in Damascus in fasting and prayer as he reflected on all that had happened. Read Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 14. Imagine what must have been going on in the mind of Ananias. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through to 14. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Imagine what must have been going on in the mind of Ananias. Not only was Saul the persecutor, now a believer in Jesus, he was also Paul, God's chosen apostle to take the gospel to the Gentile world, as we read in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 to 18. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. No wonder Ananias was a little confused. 
If the church in Jerusalem was hesitant to accept Paul some three years after his conversion, in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 30, one can imagine what questions and concerns filled the hearts of the believers in Damascus only days after the event. Notice, too, that Ananias was given a vision by the Lord telling him the surprising and unexpected news about Saul of Tarsus. Anything less than a vision might not have convinced him that what he was told about Saul was true, that the enemy of the Jewish believers had now become one of them. Saul had left Jerusalem with the authority and commission of the chief priest to root out the Christian faith, as we uh, read in Acts 26.12. God had, however, a vastly different commission for Saul, one that rested on far greater authority. Saul was to take the gospel to the Gentile world, an idea that must have been even more shocking to Ananias and the other Jewish believers than was the conversion of Saul himself. Where Saul had sought to curtail the spread of the Christian faith, now God would use him to spread it far beyond anything that Jewish believers ever would have imagined. And so to finish today, read 1 Samuel 16.7, Matthew 7.1 and 1 Corinthians 4.5. What is the message of these texts in regard to why we must be careful in how we view the spiritual experience of other people? First of all, First Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Matthew seven one, Judge not that you be not judged. And First Corinthians four five. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. What mistakes have you made in your judgments about others? And what have you learned from those mistakes? Wednesday, June 28. The Gospel Goes to the Gentiles. Question. Where was the first Gentile church established? What events caused the believers to go there? And we'll look at Acts chapter 11. What does that remind you of from Old Testament times? And we'll look at Daniel chapter 2. First of all, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through to 21. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And verse 26 and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. 
And in Daniel chapter 2, we read the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the image, gold, silver, brass, iron, part iron, part clay. And that came out of, well, it came out of persecution, just like the persecution of the early Christians with the stoning of Stephen. And the, the image actually showed that the people would be ruled by different nations. And, and here it is, at the time of Paul, that there are Christians in Antioch, which is a fair way from where it all started, under the rulership of the Romans at that time. That was the iron legs of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. But what we notice too is that the people of God at that time came together to find power and strength and comfort, as Daniel did with his friends. The persecution that broke out in Jerusalem after Stephen's death caused a number of Jewish believers to flee 300 miles north to Antioch. As capital of the Roman province of Syria, Antioch was third only to Rome and Alexandria in significance. Its population, estimated at 500,000, was extremely cosmopolitan, making it an ideal location not only for a Gentile church, but as the starting base for the worldwide mission of the early church. Question. What occurred in Antioch that resulted in Barnabas's visit to the city and his subsequent decision to invite Paul to join him there? What kind of picture is presented of the church there? And that's Acts chapter 11, verses 20 through to 26. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Constructing a chronology of Paul's life is difficult, but it appears that some five years passed between his post-conversion visit to Jerusalem and the invitation by Barnabas to join him in Antioch. What was Paul doing all those years? It's hard to say for sure. But based on the comments in Galatians 1.21, he may have been preaching the gospel in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. As we read in Galatians 1.21 afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Some have suggested that it was perhaps during this time that he was disinherited by his family as recorded in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And 
suffered a number of the hardships he describes in Second Corinthians eleven, twenty-three to twenty-eight. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day, and I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. However, the church in Antioch blossomed under the guidance of the Spirit. The description in Acts 13.1 indicates that the cosmopolitan nature of the city was soon reflected in the ethnic and cultural diversity of the church itself. Barnabas was from Cyprus, Lucius from Cyrene, Paul from Cilicia, Simeon presumably from Africa, and many of the Gentiles were converts too. Thus, the Spirit now sought to take the gospel to even more Gentiles by using Antioch as the base for missionary activities far beyond Syria and Judea. And so to finish today, read again Acts eleven nineteen to 26 What can we learn from the church at Antioch, a very culturally and ethnically diverse church, that could help churches today emulate the good that existed there. And so we'll read Acts chapter eleven, nineteen through to twenty six. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Thursday, June 29. Conflict within the church. Of course, nothing human is perfect, and it wasn't long before trouble began within the early community of faith. For starters, not everyone was pleased with the entry of Gentile believers into the early church. The disagreement was not over the concept of a Gentile mission, but over the basis on which Gentiles should be allowed to join. 
Some felt that faith in Jesus alone was not sufficient as the defining mark of the Christian. Faith, they argued, must be supplemented with circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. To be a true Christian, they asserted, Christians needed to be circumcised. We can, in Acts 10, 1, right through to 11:18, see the extent of the division between Jews and Gentiles through Peter's experience with Cornelius and the reaction that followed. The official visits from Jerusalem, which monitored Philip's work among the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and the work with Gentiles in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, may suggest some concern about the inclusion of non-Jews in the Christian community. Yet, The reaction to Peter's baptism of Cornelius, an uncircumcised Roman soldier, is a clear example of the disagreement that existed on the Gentile question among the early believers. The inclusion of an occasional Gentile, such as Cornelius, may have made some feel uncomfortable. But Paul's intentional efforts to open wide the doors of the church for Gentiles on the basis of faith in Jesus alone resulted in deliberate attempts by some to undermine Paul's ministry. Question. How did certain believers from Judea try to counteract Paul's work with Gentile Christians in Antioch? In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who believed, rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Although the Jerusalem Council ultimately sided with Paul on the issue of circumcision in Acts chapter 15, the opposition to Paul's ministry continued. About seven years later, during Paul's final visit to Jerusalem, many were still suspicious about Paul's gospel. In fact, when Paul visited the temple, he nearly lost his life when Jews from Asia cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. That's Acts chapter 21, verse 28. But let's have a look at verses 20 and 21 as well. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So to finish the day. Put yourself in the position of these Jewish believers who were concerned about Paul's teaching. Why do their concern and opposition make some sense? What can we learn from this about how our own preconceived ideas, as well as our cultural and even religious notions, can lead us astray? 
how can we learn to protect ourselves from making the same kind of errors, no matter how well-intentioned we are? Friday, June 30. From the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 124, we read, Paul had formerly been known as a zealous defender of the Jewish religion and an untiring persecutor of the followers of Jesus. Courageous, independent, persevering, his talents and training would have enabled him to serve in almost any capacity. He could reason with extraordinary clearness and by his withering sarcasm, could place an opponent in no enviable light. And now, the Jews saw this young man of unusual promise united with those whom he formerly persecuted and fearlessly preaching in the name of Jesus. A general slain in battle is lost to his army, but his death gives no additional strength to the enemy. But when a man of prominence joins the opposing force, not only are his services lost, but those to whom he joins himself gain a decided advantage. Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus, might easily have been struck dead by the Lord, and much strength would have been withdrawn from the persecuting power. But God in his providence not only spared Paul's life, but converted him, thus transforming a champion from the side of the enemy to the side of Christ. An eloquent speaker and a severe critic, Paul, with his stern purpose and undaunted courage, possessed the very qualifications needed in the early church. And that brings us to our two discussion questions. One, what lesson can we learn from the fact that some of Paul's harshest opponents were fellow Jews who believed in Jesus? And two, how can we stand up for matters of religious principle and at the same time make sure that we are not fighting against God? And the summary for this week's lesson. Saul's encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road was the defining moment in his life and in the history of the early church. With it, God changed the one-time persecutor of the church and made him his chosen apostle to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Paul's inclusion of Gentiles in the church by faith alone, however, proved a difficult concept for some within the church to accept. A powerful example of how preconceptions and prejudice can hinder our mission. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Inside Stories and More. Each quarter, the Office of Adventist Mission brings you the exciting Inside Story column in the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide. Did you know that in addition to these stories, we also provide at no charge a number of other resources containing great mission stories? All the resources listed below are available for free download at www.adventistmission.org resources. 1. Youth and Adult Mission Quarterly 
featuring exciting mission stories each week to share in Sabbath School, Academy and Pathfinder worships, home worships and more. Two, Children's Mission Quarterly. In addition to exciting mission stories for children, recipes, crafts and games are included. This excellent material may be used in children's Sabbath schools, school and home worships and more. 3. Mission Spotlight. Produced by the Office of Adventist Mission at the General Conference, these short programs give you a first-hand look at where our mission offerings are going and the opportunity to meet some of the people who will benefit from your generosity. In addition to visiting the sites of the 13th Mission Offering Projects, Mission Spotlight takes you to a number of places where your regular mission offerings are making a difference. The popular Mission Spotlight DVD is great to show during Sabbath school, before the church service, during youth programs, prayer meetings and more. It is available absolutely free from the Adventist Mission website. And the 13th Sabbath Projects. This quarter, the 13th Sabbath Offering, will be going to the Southern Asia Division. That's S-U-D. And will benefit the following projects in India. 1. A training centre in Ibrahimpatam. This centrally located training centre will be used for lay member training programs. The auditorium will be on the main level with dormitory rooms on the second and third floors. 2. Girls dormitory at the Seventh-day Adventist High School in Dimapur. This Adventist high school was started seven years ago. A girls dormitory is now needed to accommodate more students. 3. A girls' dormitory at the James Memorial Higher Secondary School in Prakasaparam in Tamil Nadu. The current building accommodates 100 girls and isn't large enough for the demand. 4. 14 new classrooms at the Seventh-day Adventist High School in Velarada. The current classrooms are very old and constructed with mud walls and a tin sheet roof. The Ministry of Education building codes no longer allow conducting classes in tinned roof buildings. The new classrooms will allow the school to again function. And five, new classroom building at the Seventh-day Adventist High School in Hatkanagale. This school opened in 1931 as one of the most prestigious in the country. The classroom building, however, is old and needs to be replaced. Thank you for your generous support. Remember, God is always faithful. And this I can testify to. I am now four weeks past my operation at the time I record this lesson and am well on the way to recovery. But best of all, I have no deficits in my brain and my voice is still there. Praise God. And I'll look forward to being with you for the next set of lessons. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.